Malachi 3, and I'm going to begin at verse 6 and then continue through verse 12. But as I said, if you keep your Bibles open, context is so helpful, and I'll be referring to it. Malachi 3, verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, and there, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Beloved in Christ, can you imagine coming home, well, to what was home, and finding that a fire had consumed your kitchen, that a wild animal had ransacked your living room and was still ramming around in it, and, and then you get to your bedroom and, and a squatter is sleeping in your bed. That's how Israel came back from captivity. They found their city, their temple, their homes desecrated. Israel's prophets told her this was from God, that this was his judgment upon Israel. But finally, God worked in the heart of Persia's king. And that king called Ezra, go back, go back to Israel. Set up the worship of your God again. Reestablish the laws of Moses. This happened around 516 B.C. Thirteen years later, the king then sent another, Nehemiah, to head up reforms for the poor in Israel. Nehemiah 5. To shun mixed marriages, to keep the Sabbath, Nehemiah 10. And to bring tithes and offerings faithfully to the house of God. Again, Nehemiah 10. Having done his work, Nehemiah returned to his emperor, and things seemed to go okay, but then 12 years later he heard things were in disarray again in Israel. Nehemiah came back, and he found the tithes ignored. Sabbaths were broken, intermarriage with foreigners, and the priesthood was corrupt. In this time and situation, Israel doubted God's love, and in this time and situation, Malachi came as prophet sent by God 
If you have your Bibles open, you go back to Malachi 1, 2 to 5. Malachi's wondering why the people are, are so distraught. They're wondering, why has God done this? Does he still care? And our text from the prophet Malachi that we read this morning begins with these words, God has not changed. God has not changed. I, the Lord, do not change, and so you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. The doctrine of God not changing is a doctrine called immutability, and the immutability of God means that he's perfect. He, he can't get worse. He won't get better. He is perfect in all his attributes. But we might wonder, in what specific areas, what attributes does God not change, and, and, and why bring that doctrine of his immutability, his unchanging character, why bring immutability here? And we may ask, isn't God holy? Isn't he sovereign? Isn't God just? Doesn't he know everything? Yes. But those aren't the relevant, unchanging attributes of God that bring us to Malachi. Malachi notes grace and mercy and kindness and love and faithfulness. Israel didn't want to hear those. If you go back to Malachi 2, verse 7, they were wearying God with their frustration. Our houses have been burned, we've been pillaged, our land broken down. Where is justice for our enemies? When are you finally going to be just? I thought you were just. We might expect God to reply, well, I haven't changed. I'm immutable. I will judge the wicked. And indeed, God will go on to say that. But first we hear of his mercy and grace. He will send his messenger. That's what the first verses of chapter 3 say. I'm going to send my messenger. Yes, like a refiner's fire, he will take your enemies, burn them to rubble. But this messenger, this messenger will come to pay for Israel's transgressions as though he would be consumed for them. He will become their justice. You see, you need my forgiveness for your sins too, Israel. How gracious of God to say, you don't want my justice for your sins, you want my mercy. Though you've accused me of changing, becoming unfaithful, in fact, I'm very faithful, I promised that you, the descendants of Abraham, would be my people. I don't change, and that's the precise reason why you still exist, why you're still being kept, not cast off. My mercy remembers to forgive your sins. And it's this kind of discussion that calls the unchanging God calls for a change in us. We must change. Due to the unchanging grace and mercy of God, we must change. Our passage calls Israel to repentance, verse 7. Ever since the time 
of your forefathers, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord. But you ask, how are we to return? How are we to return? We've really been pretty good people, haven't we? And God answers very clearly in tithes and offerings. Get back to tithing. The word tithe really means tenth. In those days, a tenth of the people's um, goods and the produce that they received, the monies they received, a tenth of that went to the Levites. It was owed to God's temple service, and the temple would then do social work, as it were, among the people. The basic tenth went to the Levites, and those Levites gave a tenth of their tenth to the ministering priests. But Israel apparently was only bringing in a small, lesser portion than the tenth And apparently they weren't, according to verse 10, giving the whole tithe. That's what verse 10 says. You're not giving the whole tithe. You're holding back. And it appears that whatever they were bringing, they weren't bringing willingly. They needed to change, and so do we. How? Are New Testament Christians called to tithe? Not exactly. More, actually. The Old Testament tithe was something God said will help to provide for a certain class of people, the Levites and the ministering priests. Now, the New Testament does say take care of of ministers, like the ox when it treads out the grain, give it something to eat. Take care of your ministers. But it doesn't specifically mention a tithe. The only place in the New Testament where a tithe is mentioned is where Jesus comes to speak to the Pharisees. You remember, probably, they insisted on a a legalistic encounter with the law of God. They would give a, a tenth of all their garden produce down to the mustard seed, a tenth of each mustard seed, if it were to be given. In criticizing their crippling approach, their legalistic approach, Jesus wasn't saying tithing is bad. He said that they had left out the weightier matters of the law, loving their neighbors, including Gentiles. Love the heart of the law. And the New Testament goes on, in fact, to call believers to set aside an offering on the first day of the week. 1 Corinthians 16, set aside an offering for the poor, for the needy believers in Jerusalem, for ministers and missionaries. The New Testament, you see, would actually heighten Old Testament laws. How much more? You remember Jesus doing that with some of the laws. And so, while we're no longer required to give a tenth of our income, a tithe, now that Christ has come and God has shown us the extent to which giving must occur, giving His own Son, 
It's hard to think of a normal Christian blessed with the fullness of the gospel of Christ doing less than a tenth. More is expected. Under reasonable circumstances, every believer in Christ should give more than a tenth. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, for all that we have is the Lord's. I wonder, how many believers today even approach the ideal of more than a tenth? I wonder about me. I wonder about you. Would God ever come to us and say, you rob me, the nation of you. You rob me. Sadly, an evangelical research um, company said that it's been proven again and again that the more a Christian makes, the less percentage-wise Christians often give. That's, that's more the, the rule, sadly, than the exception. Maybe we need to learn from Pastor Smith. I only share his story because it's too embarrassing to probably share my own, but Pastor Oswald J. Smith told of his introduction to sacrificial giving. He was a new pastor in the People's Church of Toronto, Canada. It was the church's mission week, and Smith was at the front of the church up on the platform when the deacons who were handing out tithing envelopes and pledge envelopes for mission giving came up and gave him one on the pulpit, right, right up there. Smith said, uh, this person had the gall to come up and give one to the minister. Smith read the envelope and said, independence upon God, I will endeavor to give blank dollars toward the mission work of the church in the coming year. Smith had never seen such a thing previously. Inwardly, he protested, I'm a minister. I have children. Do they know what they're paying me? At that time, he was earning $50 a week. He said he had never given more than $10 in one gift to missions ever. He told the Lord, I can't do anything. You know, I've got nothing, not a penny in the bank, nothing in my pocket. Everything's priced sky high. And he felt that the Lord was seemingly saying, so you're right, you, you, you go ahead, just, just set it down. That settles it, he said inwardly, but no, a voice seemed to bother him. I'm not asking for what you have, I'm asking for what you believe I can give you. What can you trust me for? I guess that's different, Smith thought to himself. What can I trust you for? And he seemed to hear the words, $100. $100. That's two weeks of salary, said Smith. Where am I going to get $100? But as Smith became more and more convinced that this was God's will, tremblingly he wrote $100, and he handed in the pledge envelope. Smith recalled later, I don't know how we paid for it but we did with money left over that we'd never had. The next year we doubled our pledge, he said. Can you trust God that way? Can I? Has God changed? No. He is the same God who has always been gracious 
generous with us, His people, but we must change. We must become sacrificial givers. Many of you know this verse. You've probably memorized it. Romans 12, therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's unchanging mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Did Jesus lay himself down for you? Titus says, he gave himself for us in mercy. God hasn't changed from the day he drew you to faith in Jesus Christ. And he is still willing to forgive me and you. He's still willing to help us remodel that house that's been torn down, that's been desecrated by selfishness. In view of Christ, will you lay yourself down, dying to worry and fear and doubts about the future, to be generous in his kingdom? It will please God as you and I learn to give generously. Indeed, God brings words of challenge. Words of challenge. His word comes to me and it comes to you today. Put your money where your mouth is. You say you've trusted me, you've praised me for my grace. Watch me provide as you give. Isn't that what he says in Malachi 3? Bring the whole tithe into my storehouse. Test me in this, says the Lord the Lord Almighty, the Lord All-Powerful, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I find that astounding. There are a lot of scriptures, but God's saying, test me. Do it. Give. Watch me take care of you. I'm the Lord of hosts. I'm the Lord of all power. I have enough muscles and power to catch you. I was reminded this morning as I saw Rob here in church, um, I've always been so impressed by his muscles. You think of this, this summer, seeing a dad, a strong dad in a very shallow pool, saying to this teetering little child that's freezing on the edge of the pool, jump, I'll catch you. There is no way this big person who's this high into the water is not going to be able to catch you. God says, I've got you. Trust me, isn't that a wonderful call of the Lord? But you might say, I've already given it worship. Glad this is coming after the offering, right? Don't miss the blessing. I'm here to tell you that the New Testament church at Corinth, we didn't read those passages in Corinthians, but the New Testament church at Corinth had a problem. It was disunity, infighting, division, selfishness, self-absorbed people always wanting their own ways. They were breaking apart, and I find it very strategic that it's at the end of this letter to the Corinthians that Paul says, give. Give to the poor. 
for the Christians at Jerusalem who have been through famine, who have been through persecution. Don't think of yourselves. Think of them. Give as Jesus gave to you. It's the cure for your issues. 1 Corinthians 16. Now about the collection for God's people. Do what I told the Galatian church to do on the first day of every week. Each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections have to be made. This is your gift to Jerusalem. I know it's not specifically mentioned, but doesn't it stand to reason that this would have been done during the offering time at a service? Wouldn't this have been done during worship on the first day of the week? When they were meeting for public, corporate worship? So, it's a little bit of a lengthy closing, but just bear with me. What do we learn? What do we learn about the principles for our offering on the first day of the week? I'll be brief as I can on each one, but, but I think the first principle is this. Everyone give. Everyone give. 1 Corinthians 16, each one of you should set aside a sum of money. Giving's for every Christian. Children, if you are getting an allowance from your parents and it's only $5 a week, Let's do 10, that's easier. Tell them you need a raise to 10. What's 10% of 10? Okay, bring a dollar, right? I can even do that math and I'm not good at math. If you have a calculator, that'll help you. If you go to the grocery store and you get some work done there, if you're doing some cleaning during the week, show the rich people in church that it starts small. And for you, that's quite a bit of money actually. Start there, go ahead. Set an example, a sincere amount set aside for God. All of you do it. And then, not only everyone give, give trustingly. God tells Israel to bring in the whole tithe, not just a bit, all of it. God can catch you. Do you trust him? Then put your money where your mouth is. Give back a portion of the fruit that he has given you the energy to, to earn or to, to, to pick, if you will. Remember, there was a widow Jesus pointed to. She had one coin left. He said, out of all the people in this room, that woman gave 100%. That's a tithe plus. Will you trust God with your money? God is faithful and powerful. What does Paul say in Corinthians? And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. What is God looking for? Good works. That's riches in God's sight. It's not a new car. It's not enough in your 401k. It's being generous. And Paul goes on to say, he who supplies seed to the sower will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your, what? Your money? Your righteousness. That's what God is seeking. That's what he's seeking. And not only must everyone give and give trustingly, but we should give voluntarily. 
Give voluntarily. Each one of you should give what he's decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Don't wait for your parents to tell you, or parents don't wait for your kids to tell you. Don't wait for your CPA to tell you, oh, this could help you in your taxes. Give. Dive in, don't cling to the edge of the pool or safety. And then give cheerfully. What do we read? For the Lord loves a cheerful giver. A friend of mine loves to give. When he, when he gives, he gets crow's feet at the side of his eyes. Whatever he gives. This, this man, you'd think, oh no, what's going to happen? And then to see, see people benefit and be blessed and to see God honored. Well, it makes me happy to see him happy. I love a cheerful giver. How much more does the Lord? And how do we give like this? Give thankful for Christ's love. Jesus gave himself up. And Paul says this service that you perform, this giving, 2 Corinthians 9, this service that you perform is overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Not only are you giving thanks by giving, others are giving thanks because Jesus, the great gift, has worked this gift in you. And finally, or no, not finally, but give us proof of your love. Paul's words in Corinthians 9 are about offerings for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. And what does he say? Therefore, show these men the proof of your love because of the service by which you've proved yourselves. Your giving proves that you love your neighbor. Not only do you love them when you give to the benevolent offering, your deacons here have those gifts for those who are poor, but every time you give to a mission cause, you're praying that someone will come to know the riches of Jesus Christ. When you support ministries of Christ, you want people to know Christ. We give us proof of our trust in God, but also love to neighbors. God hasn't changed in his love. May we not change our love at offering time. And finally, give glorifying God. Paul says, because of the service of giving by which you proved yourselves, because of the service of giving by which you proved yourselves, men will praise God. Let your good deeds shine so that they may praise God because of you. In this obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and your generosity in sharing with them and everyone else, people will come to know God because of you. I'm told that in Dutch churches, I don't know if it happened in this one, but I'm told in Dutch churches that you can get change at time of offering. Now, I don't know, children, if that's true, but make sure you give a bigger dollar and then you take a lesser one back, <laughs> right? If you think $5 would be about, well, then put in a 10 and, and then take out a five and, and we won't hold that back from you. You can do that in a Dutch church. That's what I've been told. But I know this, God hasn't changed. He's still merciful, he's slow to anger, he's abounding in love for his children. And he graciously invites you to learn to share his generosity, to share in his likeness. If like Israel in 516 BC, 
you become captive to your own sin, your own greed, your own selfishness and worry and doubts about money, a compulsion to work to spend money on yourself, change today. If your trust in God is in a shambles, burned over someone or something else other than God living in the center of your home, then repent and return to God. Don't rob him. Give your offerings again in thanks for his son. God will make change in you. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and Father in heaven, almighty, almighty Father, we make a shambles of our lives and we doubt you and we live for money or self out of fear rather than faith. Thank you for the gospel of your grace, for, for second chances and third chances, fourth chances to jump trustingly into your arms again. Thank you for the work of Christ who generously gave himself as a living sacrifice to you and for us in love. In light of him, we know you love us. Help us to love you and to give, to love others and give generously. Work grace in us. The gift of graciousness to give trustingly, voluntarily, cheerfully, and thankfully because you will not quit loving us in Christ. Help us to give, proving we trust you, and that in this service of giving, we might somehow reflect your character so that others know you through us. You do make change, and we rejoice. Hear us for Jesus' sake. Amen.